This episode is sponsored by Tenji. Tenji is the chat app that always shares 50% of its revenue with users in the UK through a weekly free prize draw. And the more you chat and the more of your friends that join Tenji, the more chances you have to win. Tenji, the chat app that gives back. Download now for iPhone and Android by searching T-E-N-G-I. Hello and welcome to 361, a weekly podcast about mobile tech and everything around it. My name's Ben Smith. I'm Ruth Blanford. And I'm Ewan McLeod. This is Season 12, Episode 5, and this week we're taking a trip into a world that never was. Where Nokia switched platforms five years earlier. And where operator platforms ruled the earth. Listen to the end of the show to find out the winner of our 10G competition to win £1,000 in cash. That's 10G, the chat app that gives back. Welcome back, chaps. Put your phone down there, you and yes. Sorry about that. Sorry. Thank you, Ben. Arriving, arriving in late. Well, I just uh, yeah, I should put the volume off for him. Um, yeah. Right. Sorry, I'm ready now. How's it going? For the five minutes before the podcast, I say, are we ready? Yes. Yeah. So everyone turn their phones off. Yes. Are we all ready? Have you done a wee? Yeah. Do you need to go before we start? <laughs> Hello, everyone. He's like herding cats. Honestly. Hello, you and McLeod. Hello, Rafe Blanford. How the devil are you both? Um, oh, I'm good. You? How are you? Need to go to the toilet. Right. <laughs> are we there yet? Yeah. Okay, right, come on, let's, let's move set, swiftly on. Sensible face. Has, has anything of interest or note happened to you before we start this week's conversation? Uh, I, did I tell you I've got the Galaxy? Did you I tell did. you? I don't know. Yes. Did, um, yeah, we've talked have about that already. Yeah. Did I tell you about the gear? Yes, you've you about that too. Have you used it? Have you tried yeah. it out? Yeah, I have used it, and I am not that impressed. Oh. Uh, it's almost as if the thing they gave away free is completely worthless. <laughs> I did. It said worth £100. Oh, I'll definitely get that. Oh, well, hang on, hang on <laughs> a second. I'm just going to write worth £500 on this piece of old rope, which I'm going to sell you later. I just realise it's just a big lump of plastic with some lenses. So, uh, yeah, it, it's cheap. But actually, I think VR has now come of age because I think if you look at the Gear 360 camera and the equipment from LG... Right. The complete platform is there. You can capture it, you can watch it, and you can put it on Facebook and YouTube. And I think that's different. So kind of the age of user-generated 360 video and photos is very much Now they need to send you some friends who care. Can I tell you the where I really... Such a cynic. I'm not liking this, the gear. Oh, I think it's not even the podcast. No, (laughs) it's not the gear I don't like. It's the the fact that I can see the pixels. So it's not VR, because it's the same with all the other VRs I've tried recently, or the the new modern ones, or recently released ones. Because you put the phone in, the phone is about, you know, uh, what, a couple of inches away from your face. All I can see are pixels. Yeah, I think I you can't see the actual. It doesn't look like a nice visual image yet, and that's even on the well. No, I tried an iPhone today, and that was Retina, and it just it wasn't good enough. You need a two K or actually, frankly, a four K phone for it to make sense. And actually, it's the only reason to have that high resolution in a phone is for VR. Yeah, I tried the one that you had. You mm. tried you with the iPhone in a headset, yeah. and I noticed as well as you, if you moved, it, the image was quite blurry until you yeah. stabilised your head and it levelled up. It was hugely impressive. It's, got, it's worthwhile trying. I can really see the potential of it. I'm just think, talking about the thing that annoyed me a lot was the dots. And, right. I, and I will say, if you go up to thing. something like the Vive or the standalone Oculus or mm. the, the PlayStation, the Sony version it becomes a lot more impressive, yeah. and that's going to come down to those. So you've got to remember this. I mean, the Gear VR is basically just a dumb piece of plastic. Yeah, it's, it's all, it's all driven fine. through fair the point, phone. Fair point, yeah. So all that's I'm actually, saying... That's actually part of Samsung's design language, isn't it? Hello, Ooh. here's the new 2016 dumb piece of plastic. I think it's easy to be very critical without 
in VR is... <laughs> in fact, at, and I am. Yeah. At, at the early stages, and I think actually it's got a great deal of potential, and now all the tools are in place for it to actually work for consumers and not just be a, oh, wow, this is something we can show off at a trade show. Blanford, anything exciting happen to you? All right, let's move on then. My life just isn't as exciting as everyone seems to think it is, but I did watch the Apple keynote tonight as we're recording this, and it was interesting for me because it was for the first time, I think there Boring. was... A, there was quite a negative response. That has been the case for the last couple of keynotes, but this was a small one. But actually, I don't think it's fair to call it boring because I think the um, SE is a very sensible thing to do. They've still got a lot of people who want those smaller iPhones and the iPad, you know, kind of the excitement had already come from the Pro. But those are two products I expect to do very well. And it's actually a contrast to Apple of a little while ago. They've basically been broadening their portfolio. They've been doing it quite slowly. So rather than just occupy a couple of spaces at the top end, they now have quite a broad range of phones and quite a broad range of tablets. And that's happened relatively quietly. And people haven't thought about that. And so to me, it's interesting to see Apple has shifted away from being exclusively high-end and it's just a bit more obvious now i mean they've been there for a while and that's what caught my attention from the keynote like podcast hosts over time you become broader in the middle exactly and so, uh, what about you well my thing of the week this week is also the reason that we're doing this week's episode topics so are well, should we roll them together yeah, okay. I, have, I have been watching the man in the high castle oh, uh, oh, yes. amazon prime uh, amazon originals so have you have you tried the flicking forward bit yeah, so I was really impressed. You'd said how good the iOS client was yes. for Amazon. And I've realized as well that not just is it a really good client, lets you scroll forward and backwards and, and manipulate the video. Yeah. If you press the screen while during playback, yeah. you get loads of contextual background information. All the characters that are on screen, you get, really get their good, bios. But even at some point, there are even historical notes and references out to music and that kind of stuff. Yeah, fun facts. All the, any music track at all yeah. is always played. Yeah, I think yeah. this is the X-ray stuff that you get with yeah. Amazon. You get it on the Kindle and on their, their TV. So probably for our culturally literate audience, we should Don't point look at out me. What are you looking at me it for? does actually come from a book. It's not just uh, an Amazon original series. Well, no, I'm enjoying yeah. the Amazon original series, although it's a book yeah. by Philip K. Dick, I think, isn't it? Indeed, although the plot line is, is rather different and they have kind of to set that, it up to be multiple seasons. Yes, I have to. I haven't read the book, so I am part of the uncultured. Anyways, I was enjoying it, but yes. I don't think it's a spoiler to say that the whole premise of this storyline is to speculate what would have happened if the outcome of the Second World War was different. This paints a picture of America partitioned by the Japanese and the Nazis mm. and with a neutral zone in the middle and there's a fantastic story and I recommend it. However, we then got to talking and we said, well, what if we played that game? What if we, not partitioning America, That's we haven't got time for that. <laughs> um, what if we played what if? Right. So we've set ourselves two what-if questions about mobile, and it's not the kind of life-changing magnitude of a world war, but we thought, well, actually, over the years that we've been talking and writing about mobile, some really seismic events have happened that have established these ginormous firms, Apple and Google and maybe even Microsoft and some of the other players. But Nokia. Uh, yeah. I maybe. just wanted to get, I don't want to say Nokia first in the podcast before he did. It's decline and fall. Exactly. Oof. So, okay. So uh, we're going to ask ourselves two what if questions. And Rafe Blanford, I'm going to give you the honour of introducing the first one. So the first one is what if Nokia had been braver and switched platforms earlier? Mm. So imagine a world. I'm going to do my, my movie voice. Movie yeah. voice. Like, imagine a world. One man. Exactly. No. Wavy lines across the audio. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what if Nokia had been braver and switched platforms earlier? So specifically what we're talking about, Rafe, here is that Nokia eventually was compelled to pick a smartphone platform 
to go with and there was much debate over which one they should have gone with. They chose Windows Phone and it's probably boring and overdone to debate whether that was the right thing. But what if they'd made that choice many, many years earlier? Yeah, and I think the context of this conversation was Nokia was on Symbian. It was the leading smartphone manufacturer in the world by a big, big distance, 90% market share. A million handsets a day. And and practically for for people who are in the places that mostly listen to us. So we're mostly in the UK, North America, and and, and Europe with a smattering across Asia. Are we in Japan or not? No, with a smattering of listeners across Asia. And hello if you're listening in Asia. But for for the vast majority, UK, North America, Symbian was the only smartphone operating system. Yeah, and I think particularly in Europe, I mean, the Americans didn't, get Symbian in the same way that we did because they had Palm Pilot, Windows Mobile and various others. But in Europe in particular, it was all dominant. And I think even back then, there was a recognition that it was very much uh, grown up from the feature phone space. And it isn't recognisable so much in the smartphone that we see today because it was non-touchscreen. It was kind of soft key driven. Many of the services and concepts were still there. And actually, there is relatively little even in today's smartphone that you couldn't recognise from some of those early devices but at that time they had MIMO coming along which was their Linux based platform and there was a recognition that Symbian might not be suited for the future and they were I don't want to get too bogged down in the discussions there or identify a particular date but what we're kind of talking about here in particular is what were Nokia's internet tablets originating with the 770 and then going on to the 800 and then the N900 and these were what they sound like they were kind of tablet devices actually screens that weren't that much bigger than the modern smartphone now you and inside mm-hmm. Nokia at the time yes. there was a fight brewing wasn't there and the people who were involved in the part of the business that was making these internet devices believed firmly that they were the future, the future. Mm-hmm. they were pioneering what was going to be the next generation of devices and yet much of the establishment inside the firm believed that they were already market dominant and they could just right stay they were at and i remember going to fantastic technology demonstrations actually in Finland and witnessing the huge amounts of innovation that were going on and being amazed by it, but also being amazed by how little I actually saw manifesting in the products themselves. So how far back would the decision have had to be made in order for Mamo or Migo or one of those, you know, whatever it was called at the time, to become the lead platform? Well, this was the the problem. I, when I, I spoke to a lot of Nokia executives and individuals around the company routinely, and the, the challenge that they had is you can't forget how big Nokia grew, how big the company became, and then how politicized everything within the company was. I was the one that was at the press conferences or at various different meet and greet sessions, the one going, excuse me, you know, hello. Difficult uh, question. I, 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 rem- I remember your voice from that time. Thank actually. you, right. It's, it's, it's changed now. But I, I was constantly saying, when is that coming? When are we going to see this? And why, why don't we see that? And how come this Nokia handset has got uh, Wi-Fi enabled and this one doesn't? And how come this has got a better camera and that one doesn't? And I, I yeah. and when I'm asking the, the individuals, they're saying, oh, well, that's because, you know, so-and-so won. You know, so the, the, the infighting that was happening in the different projects where they were bartering features and components was absolutely ridiculous. And the challenge that they were having just getting a latest version or a recent version or a modified version of the N95 base operating system for me as a Vodafone customer, you know, that was, was absolutely ridiculous. It took yeah. them ages to get any updates out there. And there were the fights between N-series and E-series, which were both Symbian handsets, but they had different products and different feature sets 
uh, because of that. So let's pull back then, because we've talked about the, we mentioned those devices that we, we saw. We mentioned the, the N800 2007 and the N900 2009, and I had one of those and I, I loved it briefly. Let's say that that strategy was being set back in 2005 yeah. and let's say that well that's the point it had to be set years in advance let's that's say, my point i was trying to get to there actually i think we can identify a specific point of divergence which was the n800 which was kind of that second generation the first full consumer product which didn't have cellular connectivity it was basically just a tablet and it was called an internet tablet it was very deliberately not a phone that was the political decision and let's so let's let's put ourselves in that meeting then and let's say that a different set of arguments won out and they decide actually no it is going to have cellular connectivity it's, it's going to be, be no be fighting phone. it's going to be a phone and that it's going to become our platform let's spool forward so let's yeah. let's begin to then track the kind of difference that that decision might have made and obviously this is all you know horrendous speculation okay, well, so, so number one for me is Rafe here's a question for you how many so the N95 I think many of us will remember that handset yeah. how many versions of the operating system did Nokia have to produce because it was like one one per operator almost. Yeah, it was something like uh, 250 to 350 variants per device. Now, so that- now, and just just so the, the listeners have got that right. So you, version one comes out right, and it's got six bugs in the in the calculator and six bugs in the SMS or whatever. It ships to me with bugs in it, right? Yeah, I would remember. I would have to work around these bugs as a user, and I think when's the next update coming? Now, how quickly would that come? Yeah, I mean, that could be as much as six months. And I mean, that was a common problem across the industry, that it was still the operators were very powerful at that point in time. And I can't actually see that changing. It was, you know, even Apple still faces that problem. It's just hidden by the fact they do a lot of the certification behind the scenes. But what I do think would have happened, there would have been a consolidation of the platform essentially down to a single base variant rather than the three or four that we actually ended up with in the Symbian world. So that's saving number one for them. So Okay, so let's spool forward then. The cellular radio goes in this Linux-powered device and it begins to go to operators and an investment begins to get made in making this a platform. What happens next? How well, does this they, begin? They need to be able to update it regularly. So that, again, that was my point, right? So if you that, get, that was built into the platform. So it was touch-based, so that immediately starts changing the equation. There were services baked in, and, for example, it had this concept of kind of unified messaging and unified people and started bringing the social. It had a grown-up browser and open source, so the software that it was reliant on, you know, was being built beyond just Nokia itself. So when would we see the first flagship feature or the first app or the first service being put over to this new internet Linux enabled tablet line, the me let's call it Migo yeah. for now. When would they have made a different decision? When would we have seen some hero device pop up in some kind of press conference? And what would have been the signifier? Because I remember talking to people within Nokia who were convinced that was going to happen any yeah. moment. So we're not. It was almost. We're, uh, we're not a million miles. It was always like, you know, coming, coming soon. Yeah. Well, you, you have to look at the N900. Probably is the first hero device, and that was the one that I think we'd probably all say was the multimedia yeah, computer that. that had been promised by Nokia marketing. Did kind of arrive, and that was the one with the slide-out keyboard, and that did have cellular connectivity. So I think we can envisage that kind of product, but in a phone form factor arriving a couple of years earlier. Now, we're making some massive assumptions around the engineering because actually the problem essentially with with Memo is everything arrived late. Now, it depends who you talk to, why that happened. But if you can fix that problem and maybe by throwing more resources at it or whatever it is that you need to do, you know, 
buy-in from you know more senior stakeholders. I think that does change things because you have a product that's suddenly much more mature and actually. I would even go so far as to argue, you know, comparable with the iPhone when it came out, or at least the gap would have been a lot smaller. That was already. And you'd have had all of those Nokia advantages in terms of the uh, supply chain, the relationship with the operators that Apple didn't have and actually would have been a hindrance. So let's speculate then on what would have been the impact of Nokia having a touch-enabled modern operating system based device, perhaps a precursor to the N900, available around the time when Apple announced the iPhone? Wouldn't it have put the iPhone in a completely different light? Because it was basic, but actually consumers and and technology enthusiasts were generally enthused about it because they could see the kind of the quantum leap in terms of the interface and the way it offered services. There was no ecosystem. To begin with, with Apple at all, no app ecosystem when when the, the phone launched, that came very quickly. But I think we often forget that there was a thriving, or a wannabe thriving ecosystem of app developers for Nokia. Now they weren't massive, and it was really difficult. But I knew and tracked a lot of the mobile app developers. I could probably count them on my fingers: the ones in London, the ones that were successful, or trying to be, or yeah. almost successful. But there was an ecosystem already. So, and I think people would have piled in really quickly. Yeah. Uh, into that facility because you were giving people a computer in their hand, right? Which was uh, amazing at that point. It had terminal and shell. You know, you could. It was, it was a fantastic device. See, I, I mean, I do get skeptical about this because there were a lot of those ingredients in place for Symbian. It had the scale, and it, it didn't happen to the same extent as the iPhone. But I think if we're making this assumption about Mamo happening earlier, you're essentially saying that Nokia had been a lot braver and was prepared to take risks. I think it would have therefore decided that some of the other things it saw as future trends, and it identified touch very early on. You saw that from things like the Symbian version of the, um, or is it the uh, 7710, something like that, which was a kind of a touch-enabled yeah. device. And there were a couple of, there was a prototype of that as well. So if you assume that, you can actually say things like the App Store and some of the other yeah. over-the-top services would have been in place earlier and they would have kind of solved some of those issues because actually probably one of the failings of Nokia was it tended to be quite conservative in its decision-making. There was a lot of decision by committee. So if it had experimented a bit more, can we make the assumption that some of those things that we now recognize as really important parts of building the ecosystem, the user experience would have happened? Or at least I think if you just, the general thesis of it being closer to what Apple did, and I think the comparison you could make is probably Android. If you know it was Linux-based in the same way, would have you know been widely adopted and liked by the geek community. And that was the signs were all there on Memo. It had an amazingly strong community for its size. Therefore, it's that ability to compete with Apple that Symbian and Nokia in in the world we know didn't have. With the shackles of S60 taken off, because yes, there was S60 Touch. You were correctly on the name yeah. on that one. Is S60 Touch? But it, it felt very, very clunky because it was retrofitted to this primarily keyboard-based interface in it. And even though it was touch it was horrible yeah. um, but with the shackles taken off around sort of the time and the, the announcement of the iphone a, a platform as you say a bit like android with a fresh start some of the parts of the other operating systems that begin to have legs so things like multi-touch things like the physics of the interface that gave it a very natural feel the the would way happened, the yeah. polish could have very quickly been picked up and in, included in that kind of interface so what does where does that leave Android, because Android happened because Google was looking around for an entry into the mobile place. Do you think that Google would go perhaps 
to a Nokia would to they have partner, done a deal with Nokia? or would yeah. they have just become a pure services player? Because actually, there was a number of people like Yahoo, for example, at the time, who had pure mobile services that they were trying to offer. Well, it's fun to speculate that Hilden UI, which is what we're, we're talking about here, and actually it's interesting to note that Hilden originated actually even before Maymo and could have been running on Symbian, but that's a whole other alternative I'm, history. I'm pressing the panic alarm nerd yes, button exactly. on the desk. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's great to speculate that Google would have um, you know, adopted or just gone service play, but I actually think they wanted to control their own destiny. I think they were well aware of what they were doing when they bought Android. They wanted to develop their own ecosystem. They, they spotted a gap in the market. But would other manufacturers have been more interested in kind of a properly open source platform? I actually think, you know, they were offered that with uh, Symbian and some of Nokia's other platforms as well, but they just didn't want to partner with the dominant player as they saw it in the mobile space. So I think Nokia would have still had this issue that it wouldn't have had many friends in the industry outside the kind of standard GSM and all that kind of stuff. So I think they would have still had a great deal of difficulty forming their own ecosystem. And I'm not sure how much that changes. So does Android still happen? Yes. Does it take off quite so rapidly? Perhaps not. Whilst I'm not a, an app developer, and I certainly wasn't at, th- at that point, I thought that the important difference between MAMO, MIGO, and, and S60, and indeed the other touch interfaces, was not really any much of the technical underpinnings, but it was the imagination of the art of the possible, that as a developer or as somebody who wanted to make a business, you could sit down and see that there was going to be an engaging, interesting app. I mean, you and you mentioned people wanting to hack the iPhone in yep. order to launch app stores even before the, the proper app store came along, because it was such a an engaging pleasant interface to you it? it made you imagine what you could do if you were allowed to do the things apple was doing and you didn't get that with s60 there was menus and prompts and okay and and it was a it was, it was a suffering from technical legacy basically it was suffering a lot from technical legacy and it, it sort of doesn't matter what the source of that was it was just this kind of inspirational new everybody view. became an expert so, come on, we need to scroll even further forward. Okay, right. Uh, remember the 900. Let's imagine that five... There would have been a whole series of five, those phones. Five versions on with a top-of-the-range camera, full multitasking. I mean, it had multitasking anyway, right? Remember, the, the Apple iPhone still doesn't have multitasking. We didn't get music playing properly or video playing in the background or any any kind of streaming services for quite a while before. The, so, th- this would have been a clear, clear, capable internet device. Well... For me, what happens is that the Ovi services, the the Nokia services, get a massive boost because all of a sudden you have a potentially large marketplace of people really hungry for these touch-enabled devices because whatever developers and whatever Google might think, if customers could get an iPhone-like experience or all the things that are now seen as desirable... No, don't think about the enterprise as well. Well, it's secure, but also, f- but from a, a player they trust. At this point, Nokia yeah. is the gold standard for consumer um, opinion and, and respect. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, you need to have a gaming store and an app store and all these ecosystem pieces, which Music, Nokia, radio. Nokia executed so poorly. But I think they executed it so poorly because they had this horrendous legacy estate yeah. where it was difficult to actually deliver yeah, I mean, anything. I mean, they had the vision. And actually, I think you see a world where open source plays a much bigger role in kind of mobile albeit hidden to most consumers, but I think that's actually kind of important to the underlying developers. So you keep scrolling forward. I actually think you get to a world where suddenly there's three big platforms instead of two. And I think... I would have liked to have seen a strong Nokia competing. And I think think it, you know, 
we're not saying Apple or Android wouldn't have happened, but I think it would have given Nokia the opportunity to get into this new world in a way. It's just been a couple of years earlier on. It just makes that transition so it doesn't kind of then spend three or four years trying to catch up and all the damage that that did. Because I think we have to assume that the whole culture within Nokia has changed with this decision yeah. and the whole mindset. And so it's become much more like and, and realizing that it's, you know, kind of the stuff beyond the phone that matters more. It is very speculative, this, but I think we end in a world where, you know, you have three big mobile platforms. Okay, so scenario two then, you and McLeod. Okay, scenario two, what if operators had built successful platforms? Hmm, what could you possibly mean? Well, I'm, I'm thinking, I don't do any of you recall Vodafone 360. No, but I do recall what you wrote about it, though. Mm. <laughs> you weren't very kind, as I recall. I absolutely hammered Vodafone on their 360 service. Give us a 30-second rendition for those that aren't familiar with it. Okay, you can find more, by the way, on mobileinsreview.com. Don't, don't bother. Subtle. Yeah. Basically, it was an end-to-end platform created by Vodafone, a mobile platform, a mobile community, a software development service and facility for them. An ecosystem. An ecosystem, uh, you may say. Very it, good. It was hardware and software. I think that That's was the right. key they, point. They, they had done a deal with Samsung. They had um, two handsets, the H1, the H2 that came out. Literally two handsets, because that's how many they sold, <laughs> isn't it? It did feel like that. But that way it was launched uh, Europe-wide. So most of the, the Vodafone companies were marketing it. It had its own segment in each Vodafone store when you walked in. It was almost a wannabe Facebook competitor. It would take your photos, store them in the cloud. It would they, they do everything it, it, that it you... Was, it was absolutely comprehensive in yeah. its ambitions. And this it happened a wonderful in, concept. in, what, uh, 2009, I think it was. That's right. So did your email, did your contacts, your calendar, all that. Okay, so here's the question then. Yes. Vodafone 360 happened in 2009. Yeah. The iPhone 3G, which introduced the App Store, many of the services, mobile me yeah, integration. That's when it got real. When it got real, when it became when the yeah. iPhone really matured into a platform, that happened in 2008. Mm. So come with me now yeah. into a world where those two dates switch. So Vodafone launches their platform, their ecosystem first. Yeah. They have a year to launch it, and the iPhone arrives into a world where operators have already launched ecosystems. And what let's just assume that the ecosystem was amazing because there were some execution challenges, right? That, that's a pretty big assumption. Well, I think no, I think we need to do that. I okay, think we need to, fine. Um, but if you if you look at the Apple of 2008, 2009, and the Vodafone of 2008, 2009, yeah. and we're picking on them because they actually did it, but we yes, have to assume... Kudos that, to them for doing that. We have to it, assume yeah. that other networks could have and probably were looking at it yeah. as well. They were both organisations with enough money to do that thing at that time and the requisite skills. Whether or not they actually executed on it is a different matter, but it was not beyond the bounds of possibility. Yeah, so it, it could have been amazing, I think is what we're saying, right? So with 360 coming earlier, remember that at this point, data was very expensive, right? We, we were getting to unlimited data-ish, but it was, it was quite a difficult marketplace. You're still paying for SMS, right? You're still paying a lot of money for phone calls. But what the operator was doing was saying, well, if you use 360, if you use We're our platform, rated. everything is zero. So, you know, I was thinking, oh my God, I need to get my family onto this. So immediately, this becomes a really desirable thing for all those early adopters who jump on the iPhone. Well, and, and this is the WhatsApp concept, right? In that if, if you're, you're all on the same network, not just where your, your text message is zero rated, but you got to use all these really cool services that would say where you were. There was lots of over-the-top facilities that we know of now, like WhatsApp, but that was integrated into this platform. 
Okay, so Rafe. Rafe is making a face. So Vodafone 360 launches... It was ahead of its time. That was pretty cool. It launches, a, it launches a year early, and they have a year's head start. They launch the same mediocre devices and the same broken services, but they launch into an environment where there are, no one can really consider an alternative that's, compl- that's the complete wrapper. Con- sync- it syncs your contacts and didn't charge you for the data. That was amazing at that point. The, the thing is, I think you're suffering from actually what people are suffering from today, that you know, the smartphone in that world started with the iPhone. It didn't. The Symbian ecosystem, as it was then, was actually pretty sophisticated. And that's what Vodafone 360 was often measured against, because even in 2009, when it did launch, actually the iPhone wasn't widespread and all-conquering like it is now. And Vodafone 360 didn't measure up against the thing that the iPhone destroyed, you know, never mind the iPhone itself. So, and there is such a big leap required to have an operator behave in a way that was kind of service-centric rather than kind of putting the operator, it's hard to imagine it being any different. I mean, yes, it would have sold a bit more, but... I mean, as you yourself wrote on Mobile NC Review, I mean, you really did cascading and quite right. And I really don't see what moving it a year earlier doesn't matter. So in the... No, kind you of need to re- make assumptions as well. You're you, right. In yeah, the, yeah. You have to make assumptions in, as well. But actually okay. in the realms of alternative history, Ben, this is an alien space bat that you have to make the assumptions to make Vodafone You need to Wikipedia work. that everybody. We, we, yeah. I have, lo- in the course of planning, and I use the term loosely, planning this episode we've discovered that Rafe has an entire language of alternate realities that you should look up on Wikipedia okay so let me repaint the scenario then the reason that 2008 is the time when Vodafone 360 launches is not just because the same plan was executed more successfully it's because Vodafone got their act together more quickly they committed more resources to it Vodafone 360 launches and it's a credible match for the services that you just referred to on S60. However, it also has all the... It's tied together. It's tied together and it has... Easy. um, It has has free data for the services you use and it has integrated operator billing, which actually even at that point... So that's all great. And actually the problem then becomes, and Vodafone 360 tried to overcome this by opening up to people who weren't Vodafone customers, but there's the network effect problem that you alluded to earlier. At best, you're only going to get most of the Vodafone customers on it and some others. The platform advantage of not just S60, but iPhone and Android as well, was it controlled larger shares of the market than an operator ever did. And it wasn't just one market. And even Vodafone, one of the big international operator, only operated in so many countries and wasn't able to launch 360 in all of those at the same time. Yeah. So I actually think the bigger problem for Vodafone 360, it could have done all right, but it would have just been swallowed by the others who had better network effects and it was you know it wasn't the right place in the stack to do this kind of thing the reason android and iphone did so well is because they were able to do it at the platform level and you don't think that zero rated data and operator billing and transactions and payments at that point could have got there would have changed it such that you would have just had maybe one or two operator platforms in each geography Possibly. Uh, it's a really interesting one to speculate about. That Japanese service because plan for, it, um, mm-hmm. who was it that was... Um, yeah, because you, you, you just have to look at Entity the... Ja- Dokomo, right? Yeah, the, with, with iMode and that yeah, whole I'm kind of it. ecosystem. And actually, that was operator-driven. And then uh, Felica for mobile payments and all of that. It, yeah, you look at Japan and you can see this model It was really succeed. cool. I, I was jealous of that. I wanted to use those services. But, I mean, they were pretty much the dominant player in Japan in a way that most of the other European markets didn't have a single dominant operator Mm. and it was relatively isolated as a market in cultural terms as well. So it was able to thrive there. But yes, I think you could, you know, 
do a throwback and say Vodafone 360 could have been the equivalent of um, you know, NTT Docomo and iMode in, in Japan. So that's a really interesting way to think about it. And you're right, zero rating of data would have been a way to sort of overcome that. I still think the way that operators think wouldn't have allowed that to happen. It's, it's really hard. It's a much bigger jump, I think, than our previous scenario. Would it have been possible for Vodafone to create a business model that allowed them to progress beyond that initial 360 offering? Because that People they were, were giving, thinking to do that. They were giving away their revenue. That's a much more interesting Thank question you. because I think to get those ecosystems working, you actually need to get partnerships in place. And if you look at any of the successful mobile ecosystems, they're actually driven by the power of developers in a lot of cases, yeah. but also the services on top. So, you know, although it's possible to get excited about iMessage, actually WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger have been the ones that have driven those over-the-top services. And the assumption that one company can do everything is, I think, false. And you see that actually with Google Maps and Apple Maps as well. There plenty of other examples of that and so yes if Vodafone had sort of been open up to partnerships and been able to do that preload which actually was something that was big back then with some of these partners that absolutely could have been interesting. Would it have damaged the iPhone to have launched into an environment where customers expected their platform data to put it crudely to be free yeah, they expected their photo syncing and their email and their social traffic to be yeah. free because that's the expectation that things like Vodafone 360 were already giving hooked them. onto it. Well, but even even if let's say I have a, an old style smartphone, but I look at Vodafone 360, perhaps which is launched, and I then view the iPhone through that prism when it launches, would Apple have needed to have, have even tried to offer that? Yeah, with well, its remember, operators? yeah, Vodafone 360 had shared albums. Right, well, it, would, it would back up all of your photos. And that was absolutely amazing, right? It took years for Apple to do that. Well, it, was, it was amazing, but it was amazing because you could afford to do it. The reason yes. Apple wouldn't offer it is that no consumer could afford point, to, to fritter away data money on something as silly as backup, effectively. That's definitely a good point to debate about. But also, I think you can speculate about how much leverage Apple would have had over the operators. It would have put operators in a more powerful negotiating position. I mean, as with the iPhone, they were so desperate to get it. They were willing to sort of bend over backwards and make concessions to Apple that no other manufacturer got, both in terms of kind of the distribution, the pricing, and some of the data deals that went with it. And consequently, Apple was in a much stronger position. If Apple had to fight a little bit more and hadn't got those good concessions, those good deal from the operators, would it have sold quite so well? I think it's easy to say that, you know, it would have had a more difficult time. And so I think Apple came into the market at the time that suited them just right, and they were very disruptive. But it's not difficult to see in this scenario one where operators just have that little bit of extra strength, that little bit of extra leverage, because suddenly what Apple is offering isn't quite so special or doesn't offer quite that quantum leap in consumer experience. I remember walking into one Vodafone store and I was looking at a 360 stand. I said to the chap, oh, how many have you sold this week? He said, oh, I haven't sold any. I thought, what's selling? He goes, well, iPhone. And they were selling you know, thousands of, they couldn't get, the, the, the iPhones were arriving and had been sold immediately. Yet there's a massive big stand there saying, Vodafone 360, it's amazing. Okay, so we, we've drifted slightly off the topic. So let's go back yes. and scroll through this. So 360 launches before the iPhone. It's the first public multi-geography operator launch of one of these complete end-to-end -end services, including all the hardware. Vodafone is emboldened by that, having invested more and having launched more successfully. They put more products out to the market. And then a year or so later, the next generation of iPhone launches. And still, whilst it's an exceptional handset at the time, 
it's not an exceptional set of services and we haven't yet got that vibrant ecosystem. The two coexist for a while, but then if we scroll forward perhaps another year or another two years, do we actually see a meaningful difference? Rafe, you're making your no face. No, I see Vodafone 360 just withering away, but probably lasting a little bit longer. And there's two reasons for that. I think at that point, people still cared a lot about the hardware and the Vodafone 360 hardware wasn't that special. I don't think they cared enough about the services and that differentiator at that point in time. The irony is if you could somehow transplant Vodafone 360 to the modern day and give it the history, actually, there probably would be a lot more people caring about it. But there is now such a huge barrier to entry. It's just impossible to see an operator doing that. So, McLeod... Mm. Vodafone 360 doesn't succeed based on the timeline that Rafe's drawn out, but does it embolden another operator to try and launch another service where they try and own the ecosystem, they try yeah, and own the Don't forget the panic that was going around the marketplace when they were looking at the iPhone and looking at the possibilities of Apple potentially taking over and then looking at the over-the-top services that would run on top of, of Apple. So there's a lot of money was available at this point, and a lot of operators, I think, would have been willing, and some were obviously willing to bet more. And if you t- yeah. it's about the execution and the market entry position. I could see a time that if you had the right executives, the right culture, the right go-to market strategy, so you know, it's 1495 a month for all in, You know, if they really, really went for it, But if you try and extend any of those ideas forward five years or so, can you ever see that a platform based around the operator rather than the the hardware could ever be successful? Rafe, I think you're saying the operator is already too small to succeed. I think that's probably the the general thing. But I do wonder whether this creates an environment for an operator to take a bigger risk and get into messaging and payment. But be willing to let go of more control of it and therefore it succeeded on a, not the whole thing but on a messaging or a payment platform right well I, I just wanted to point out that you know i think that where apple has been really really successful is the fact it's all easy and straightforward now if the operator could have got to a point with their own platform service and made it ultra simple ultra effective and really easy for your parents to use this technology and for the wider marketplace to use the platform i think there could have been some really exciting times It's difficult to know what the knock-on effects of those ones would be because they get too big. Okay, so we're going to score one for yes, seismic, world-changing change, (laughs) and Um, score nil for our second one. No, no, it probably still... It's interesting, isn't it? Okay, so talking of world-changing, seismic change, this is the point in the show where we finally get to announce who the winner of the £1,000 10G prize is. So for those of you that haven't been paying attention, then you've probably missed out. Yeah, they have. No, they have missed out, haven't they? Probably. Tenji have been sponsoring the first five episodes of season 12. Thank you very much to them. And we they you, are a chat app that give a portion of their revenue back to their users. And they do that by giving away prizes every week. And at the moment, they're in a sequence of giving away £10,000 every couple of weeks to listeners. Uh, uh, sorry, to users. Yes. I just assume everyone who's a user is a listener. Well, you would. Exactly. Yes. Um, but what they've done is they've run a special parallel competition of just for 361 listeners who've subscribed to the app. You're following the instructions that are on the website. And so now we're going to go forward in time magically using the power of editing Magically go forward in time to find out who it is amongst the 361 listeners that's used Tenji who's won a £1,000 cash prize. Hello from the future. Well, the past as you hear this, but the future is when we recorded the episode. It's Ben here. It's Friday evening, and I've just got off the phone with 
Kenny from Sheffield, who was the winner of our £1,000 cash prize. I've asked him to let us know whether he decides to waste it on a family or things like that, or whether he's going to sensibly spend it on new phones and tablets and stuff like that, which is, the, of course, the correct answer when you uh, come into some money. Thanks to everyone who entered the competition and supported us. Thanks to Tenji for supplying such a fantastic prize. If you didn't win, or rather if you're not Kenny, then Tenji have increased the frequency of their special draws. So they're giving away now... £10,000 nearly every week so if you keep using the app then you stand a chance to win through their regular competition so still give it a try and see if you can win some money through them and also test out the messaging app and see if it works for you. Of course the other big piece of news from Tenji is that they've just announced this week that they're launching in the USA so everyone who couldn't participate in this prize draw now get downloading Tenji and you can stand to win $14,000 I think it is if you're a winner in the US. So thanks again everyone for participating and congratulations to Kenny so congratulations very much to that person that no, I just I, announced I, in I, the future how many phones <laughs> oh sorry I didn't hold on so thank you very much to Tenji for doing that. Yeah. We will be in touch with that person. Congratulations. It's a lot of phones you can buy. You can buy a lot of phones with a thousand pounds. A thousand pounds in actual cash. How exciting. Well. So thank you very much to Tenji. If you have Thank you, Tenji. If you haven't won, and there's a slim chance you might not have won, you can still stand a really good chance of winning Tenji's usual prizes by going to the app store, download Tenji, and the more you use the app, the more chances you stand to win. And actually if you can get a little group of your friends on it it's a really easy way to notch up opportunities to win so give it a try certainly we've been enjoying using it amongst the 361 team so mr mcleod yes the competition is over did it you is. win uh well i wasn't allowed to win yes i was i was actually quite keen i, w- I would have spent some more in that racing game exactly <laughs> indeed which caused all that <laughs> feedback so as ever we should say our thank you thank you very much to mark at audiorangles.co.uk who edited this episode thank you to Digital LBI who provided us with the venue and access to Rafe Blanford that joke's not very funny anymore it's, Ben it makes me laugh on the inside yeah. <laughs> Thank you to everyone who has been crowdfunding the show. We are very, very grateful. No update this week on the Rafe Blanford Massage Fund, but we creep ever closer towards the $100 per episode target. So if you haven't donated, there's still time to do that. Rafe Blanford looks horrified. No! You're going to do it's inevitable. We will be back. It's happening, Blanford. Get, next get week, you can find us at 361podcast on Twitter, 361podcast.com. You can email us, leave us a comment on the show. There's also links there to leave us a voicemail if you'd like to. We're also on Facebook, but don't encourage them. We don't. It's rubbish. <laughs> we'll be back next week. Bye-bye. Special thanks to everyone who pledged money to crowdfund the show this week, including David Walker, Tim Edwards, Illico Ella, and Andy Hagen. There's a full list of our supporters on 361podcast.com, along with information on how to help us from as little as $1 per episode via Patreon.